Here we go, everybody's coming in. How exciting. Oh, Andrew, we've got a banger of a webinar coming up tonight, don't we? Are you excited? It's always a banger, Ed. <laughs> it's always exciting doing this. Hey, everybody, thank you so much for coming along. We're so excited that you're with us. We're seeing uh, a whole heap of you come through now, and so we'll just give it a moment or two to make sure everybody's able to connect, and then we'll get ripping through this. And, of course, if you've got comments let us know down in the chat where you're tuning in from tonight. So uh, pop up the chat and make sure that you're sending it through to both us, but also the host and the panellists, but also everybody else so you can see it. So I can see Cola there coming in from West Auckland. Jeffrey's coming in from Wellington. I've seen Papa Moa, Queenstown, Newlands. They're coming through f thick and fast. There's a whole heap of you on tonight, and we have almost hit the 500 mark of people uh, tuning in, so this is going to be a banger of a webinar. Of course, tonight we had over 2,000 people register, the biggest webinar we've ever done here at Opus Partners, so we know that this is going to be a great one. I can see Rachel coming in from uh, Singapore, and people even from Tamuka. Who knew there was internet there? So great to have everybody join <laughs> along there. I make that joke just because one of my colleagues comes from Tabuka. Now, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to start sharing my screen. We're going to get into this because we've got a whole heap of stuff to get through tonight, which is going to be great. Um, but just before we do that, uh, if you haven't met me before, I'm Ed, this is Andrew, and we're really excited for our presentation tonight because we are talking about, we're talking about how to live off your property investment portfolio. And... Uh, it's, this is going to be such a good one, but just in terms of housekeeping, if you haven't been to one of these before, you do get the whole webinar for free. Any data we share in this presentation, it's on the website. We are going to do a Q&A at the end. We'll do some polls throughout this, and we, this is being recorded. I know we'll get asked again, but we are recording this. You'll get this at the end as well. Uh, any source data, we don't share that. Our special spreadsheet we're going to go through tonight, we won't be seeing that out, and the slides as well. We just don't send those out, just so you know. Please do send us messages throughout the presentation, but make sure you send your chats both to panellists and attendees. Now, the reason I say that is that then we're, everybody's able to answer each other's questions and we're all happy. The other thing I would say as well is if you've got a question, please put it in the Q&A as opposed to in the chat because then we're able to keep better track of those. You're able to see my screen all right, are you, Andrew? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just for anyone that's wondering where the Q&A is, that's down the bottom towards the right. Fantastic. Now, you might be thinking, well, why should I listen to these two, apart from the fact that they're very well-dressed young gentlemen? Uh, first of all, this is Andrew Nicol. If you haven't met him before, he is a financial advisor, hosts the Property Academy podcast, New Zealand's number one property podcast. He's a property investor and what we call the president of our fictitious data nerd association. If you haven't met me, I'm Ed McKnight, economist here at Opus Partners, and I also host the Property Academy podcast, Invest in Property too. And of course, I am the VP of that Darn Nude Association. Now, Ed, I'm on mine updated so that I've got me as the uh, the uh, chief deal maker of the deal as well. <laughs> well, I make the slides, so I get to make the decisions. Now, what I want to do first, actually, is talk about why we gathered here today talking about how to live off your property investment portfolio. And the real reason is that we always have to come up with a topic to talk about at these webinars. And I was talking to some of the team who own probably four or five properties each. And they were saying, well, we've got these properties, 
But what's the exit strategy? How do I turn this into doing something? I've been doing, I've been investing because I think it's a great thing to do. But what's the next step? What's the long-term game? And so this is, tonight is all about, sweet, you've invested in some properties or you want to invest in some properties. How do you go about turning that into a lifestyle you can live off? And we've got three examples we're going to go through at the end. And we've got a whole heap of content around teaching you how to do this, which is going to be really cool. Now, one thing that I do need to say, we disclaimer, of course, is throughout this presentation, we're not telling you what you should do. We're just giving examples of what you could do and a couple of things to think about. So this isn't personalized financial advice. This is you and a couple of hundred other investors sitting around um, learning about some ideas. And that's just important to note as well. Now let's get back into this so that we can go through the key things. Now we often say in property investment that there are three stages of investing. The first is at the starting blocks. And here your goal is really to get started. This is usually people who are 20 to 35 and you're looking for your first property, maybe for yourself to live in, maybe your first investment property. The second stage is the one that most of you are probably in. And I think I'm going to do a poll of this in a second as well to find out more about you sitting at home. This is what we call running the race. And at this stage of life, you're trying to build up some equity. You're trying to increase your wealth. And what that ultimately allows you to do is stage three, cross that finish line. And so in our last month's webinar, we talked about how to plan out a property portfolio that was really geared at stage two, running the race, building up that equity. Tonight's webinar is really about transitioning from running the race to crossing the finish line so you can focus on cash flow and get a lifestyle that you can live off. Now, based on that brief description, what I do want to do as well is run a little poll to find out, well, where are you? So I can get a sense of where is everybody uh, at within their personal property investment journey. Are you at that starting block? So you're at the running of the race or you're crossing the finish line. What I'm going to do now is put that poll across your screens. We'll launch that poll. And let us know, ballpark, which phase do you feel like you are in? Are you starting out? Are you building up your equity? Or are you crossing the finish line? Where are you at? So I can see we're coming through. We've had about uh, almost 500 people respond to that so far. Once we hit around 600, I'll probably end up closing that off. And we'll share it and see where everybody's at. So this is going to be really cool. Okay, I can see so far there's a lot of people uh, running the race. And in three, two, one, I'm going to end that poll and I'll share that result with everybody. So you can see that, Andrew, can you? That result across your yep, screen? Yep, I can. 25, 65 and 10. Cool. So what we're seeing here is about a quarter of you are just getting started. 65% of you, you guys are building up your equity. You're running the race. 10% of you are here. Now, even though we are talking about the transition of how to go from stage two into stage three, this will still be beneficial for everyone. Because boy, oh boy, when I was just starting out at those starting blocks, you still want to have your eye on the finish line and be thinking about that long term as well and thinking about some of the tricks. So it's really good to see a lot of you here in stage two, because then we can talk about how to get to stage three, but really good to see a range of people here. So tonight really is about how do I go from here to here? And there are three things we're going to talk about. We're going to start by setting a broad goal for the long term around how much cash flow you need. 
We're going to talk about the strategies to get there. We're then going to talk about the game plan. And this section, these first two sections of tonight, is really about getting on the same page about the core concepts of property investment. Once we've done that, that's when we're going to have some real fun and we're going to set some rules and then we're going to break the rules. We're going to make these concepts work for three different investors' situations and their personal situations and circumstances. And yes, of course, we do have a spreadsheet that we will take you through as well. So let's, of course, start with the goal. The goal is to live off your property portfolio. And the thing that a lot of people don't tell you is that there are two strategies for how you can go about living off that property portfolio. The first is what we call the retirement strategy. And the second strategy is what we call the passive income strategy. So you're probably thinking, well, what's the difference between these two things? Well, the retirement strategy is where you build up your wealth over time. So the blue line there, that is your wealth. And in the first phase, you're building up that wealth. You're building up your asset level. But then once you hit retirement and you want that cash flow, you want to start living off your property portfolio, you sell your properties and you start to live off the proceeds. So you sell your property, you pay off your mortgage, you take whatever money you've got left, maybe you bang it into a managed fund and you start to live, that, live off that wealth and draw it down over time. Now, the great thing about this is you don't need as many assets as the second strategy. But the sad thing about this strategy, or the tough one about it, is that if you're living off your assets and gradually uh, drawing them down, then of course at some point you've got to forecast, well, when am I going to move on to the next life? And you've got to make an assumption about that. Now that's just the fact, the fact of it. Now the second strategy is what we call the passive income strategy, this is where your wealth is increasing, the blue line again. But then once you hit retirement, early retirement, whatever it happens to be, this is where you start to live off the proceeds of your wealth. So what I mean by that is that instead of selling your property and gradually living off the money you've made, keeping that money invested and living off the rent. So having properties that earn you money, you keep those properties, you're not living off the, off your wealth in terms of drawing it down, but you're living off the income that that wealth creates. Now, this is important because when we get into the case studies, we're going to show you how to potentially use a mix of both in different circumstances. But just to recap these, because they are important. Strategy number one, the great thing about it is you need fewer assets, but your assets do eventually run out. Strategy number two, great thing about this, it provides that income for life because we are living off the rental income of these properties. And the downside of it though, is that we need more assets in order to be able to get there. So you're probably thinking, well, just run me through a situation to talk about, well, roughly how many assets might I need to live off a specific property portfolio yet? So if I said, Andrew, hey honey, I think we want to spend 75k a year in retirement. Let's retire at 65. We'll probably live to 82. Now, based on that strategy number one, and just need to tell you as well, I am not including New Zealand superannuation here. So I'm going to show you a number. It might seem a little large, but if you wanted to include New Zealand superannuation within your figures, it'd be a bit lower than this. The, the amount of assets you'd need is about 1.7 mil in terms of net wealth. If you want the passive income strategy, 
it's a bit high. 2.5 mil in terms of being able to have those assets that provides an income that you can live off. Now we're gonna focus on that second strategy today. We're really gonna focus on this, though we will talk about the retirement strategy as well, but we really wanna focus on that because it provides the income for life is what we're gonna talk about. And the first thing we wanna say is if we're going to follow that strategy, we really need to know, well, how many assets am I going to need in order to provide an income that I really want? And that's probably what you're thinking. How many assets am I actually going to need over time? And the thing we say here is we usually use what's called the rule of 4%. And what this says is that if you built up an asset base, usually you'll be able to get about a 4% net income off those assets in order to provide for you over time. And we'll take you through how we got to that number as well uh, in the second section, which Andrew will talk about the sort of properties. Now, what that really means in practice is you take that level of income that you want, multiply it by 25, and roughly that is the level of assets that you need in order to provide the income and live off it. So we expect a property would be able to get a 4% net yield, build up your assets, 4% of that, that's gonna give that. Now again, what that means in practice is if you want 100k pre-tax income with a 4% yield, like we just talked about, that's your 2.5 mil worth of assets. So what we've done is we've gone 2.5 mil times by 4% or 100k multiplied by 25. Now what, are, what we often find though, Andrew, is that a lot of people want to build up this asset base but where they really get stuck at this stage, and of course this is all about setting a goal so that you know what you're aiming for, which you're gonna see why this becomes really important once we move into the case studies. But where a lot of people get stuck is how do I figure out this number? How do I figure out what I'm actually going to need to live off in retirement? And so we did what we usually do here at OPAS, which is we built a calculator to figure out the cost of your current lifestyle. And Andrew, do you want to be my guinea pig while we just run everybody through this? Let's, let's do let's do that. Um, Ed, I've got a feedback. Yeah, Mike is echoing. Does anyone else hear that? Can you hear that? Yeah, it's echoing a bit. Um, I don't know if there's much you can do in terms of adjusting that. Sorry, guys, we are doing this remotely for Ed. Um, I'm used to having him sitting next to me here in the studio, but unfortunately, he's still in lockdown in Auckland, which is why um, the fancy haircut. And so um, uh, you might get a little bit of feedback there, but it might just be something to uh, have to put up with. Um, right, Ed, let me be your guinea pig. Be my guinea pig. I'm just looking at my mic now. So... What we've done here is we've built what we're calling a cost of current lifestyle uh, calculator. Because the thing is that once you hit retirement or you want your passive income or whatever it happens to be, often your expenses will be different to what they currently are. So for instance, Andrew, give us a, a ballpark current annual income. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I, do, I do just want to say here, um, a lot of people have this assumption that they're going to live on less money when they retire, which might be true in terms of, you know, if you're, if you're living off your assets, then you don't have to worry about tax and you can't be saving contributions. That's what this works out. But just remember, you're probably going to want the same lifestyle because you're going to want some options. So that's why we work on current annual income. So let's say let's say a current household income of 150 Ed. Okay, so... That's quite a, quite a nice high uh, personal income. And KiwiSaver contribution, what do you want to account for let's there? Say, let's say that they're putting in 6% at the moment. 
Okay, and is there a partner in Cumble? They're, they're single uh, and maybe uh, not working? Uh, no, they're already, they're, they're not working. Okay, cool. So what this is going to do is it's going to look at the current annual income and it's going to take off the Kiwi con Saver contribution because we're assuming in this instance that you're not going to have that in retirement. Now, let's come over here and talk about the current mortgage as well, Andrew. Does yep. this person have a current mortgage? Yep, they do, and it's $500,000. Cool. And it's fixed at 3.75. Cool. And what's the mortgage and, and, term on there? Uh, there's 15 years left on that. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Very cool. And what about any savings or childcare? Are we doing any of this? So so they're saving $200 a week, putting in into shares. Cool, and we're assuming they're not going to be doing that later on in life? No, and, and childcare, there's none. Cool, cool, cool. Re and other, other, other... Oh, yeah. And we're going to assume that there's nothing else there. Yep. Okay, so the pre-tax lifestyle in here, because the mortgage payments are quite big in this instance, the the pre-tax cost of lifestyle in order to maintain this is really low actually in this case because the amount of tax that they're paying is relatively high at the moment and their mortgage is relatively big. So because of that, they're not actually spending uh, a, a, a hell of a lot at the moment. Now, if I got that down to zero, what happens? Well, that would increase quite significantly because we're assuming that they're spending all of that money. So what this is doing is saying, well, if you take out the mortgage, if you take out the savings, and we assume that you're not spending any of that um, by the time you want this income, how much are you actually going to do? Now, if you're doing that retirement strategy where you are building up a level of assets and then living off them, you'll use this figure here. You'll be aiming for 90k a year. Now, that's what you're actually spending. Now, if you're taking the passive income strategy where you are actually earning still an income, be tax on your income. Yeah where you're earning your income, you're still going to be taxed, so you, you'll use this figure. And that's the reason why there, the, um, the, you need a high level of assets if you're taking that passive income strategy. The other thing, uh, Ed, is sometimes um, some people, for example, that I work with might say, hey, look, we are paying our mortgage off quite aggressively at the moment, but I'm going to take that out because when I have paid off my mortgage, I want to travel more. And so that can be quite common. So if you do want to use that money, the $1,500 a week that you're putting onto your mortgage today to travel, uh, then what you do is you just leave that out so that you had the number that was reflective of, of that still being included in your spending. Now, remember, the reason that we're talking about this, the reason we're trying to figure out a number is so that you can then do this and know how many assets you're aiming for. So if you wanted the 120K uh, that we got over here, or 121, you'd multiply that by 25 and that would give you a big number. But if you had a big mortgage and this number was lower then you wouldn't need as much of a big number. Now that becomes really important when we jump into the case studies again because that's where we are going to actually see people either hitting their goal or not hitting their goal. Now let's jump into the game plan now, Andrew. So what we've done so far is we've set a goal. We know roughly how many assets we need. Now let's talk about the game plan. We've built up our equity and now we are trying to figure out how am I actually going to live off this property portfolio. So take it away. 
Cool. Oh, sorry, let me. I was just answering questions there. So the game plan um, has kind of got two two steps to it. The first step is we've got to build up our assets. So we've got to go for growth assets and build up as much of them uh, because we need to we need to have that asset base for when we retire. The second phase is being living living off the assets, and that's when you're focused on yield, and that's when your money starts working for you. So you go from working for money to work it to your money working for you. Now. One thing to remember, you can't go to step two if you haven't built your assets first. So you need to be focused on step one to be able to do step two. So if you don't do step two, then you're screwed. Technical term, technical finance term. Um, Now, there are two principles that you can live off your, your property portfolio. The first principle requires you to get rid of debt. So either pay it down or sell other assets to, to get there. So I want to show you a cash flow example of an investment property with and without debt. So let's say you've got an 800k property with 100% borrowing and also another example where you've got no debt whatsoever. Now the rent will say $32,000 a year. The OPEX which is operating costs is $8,000. The, the interest cost, remember we've only got interest costs in the left-hand example, so that's $24,000 a year, we'll say for interest costs. So the cash flow, if you've got debt, is nothing. You, you, you break even, you've got a neutrally geared property. Without the debt, if you've been able to get your debt down to zero, again either by paying it off or selling other assets, is $24,000 income. So... The biggest cost, as you can see from this, is that interest cost. Uh, that, that's the most significant for any investor. So the, the sooner we can get rid of that, the better, so long as it works from a cash flow perspective. So we need to get rid of the debt. The second principle, and this happens later on, is yearn for yield. We need to focus on properties that are going to generate us the most income because when we are in a phase where we're living off our portfolio, the yield is way more important than it is when you're building up your wealth. So I want to show you two cash flow examples, one based on a standalone house, again worth 800000 one on a room-by-room rental, 800000 The gross yield for a standalone house, I'm going to say 4%, and I'm going to say for a room-by-rental, room-by-room rental, and I'll talk more about what that looks like later on, is 5.5. Now, operating costs, we often say 1% uh, comes off the yield from the standalone house. The room-by-room rental, you'll notice we've used 1.5. Now, the reason for that is room-by-room rentals or dual-key apartments often have higher operating costs. So they're they're more management often, so you might pay a higher management fee. Um, You might have a little bit more maintenance because there are more people coming and going. Uh, You might have slightly higher vacancy, uh, and and, uh, you often have body corporates. Net cash flow, 3% on the standalone house, 4% on the room-by-room rental. So in terms of cash flow, the actual cash that you're going to get in, that standalone house is 24000 So same as what we used in the example before, the room-by-room rental is $32,000. So again, this is why when you do get to uh, uh, the kind of stage where you're, going to, you're finishing the race, if you want 100 k worth of income, you're going to need four of those standalone houses paid off compared to three of the room-by-room rentals. And so that's more achievable. So you might be thinking, what does a high yielding property look like? And for anyone new to this, uh, to, to our webinar series and have never heard about these, we thought we'd give some examples. Now, the first example is a but development just in before, Hamilton. 
But just before we do that, we're also going to do a poll oh, as well. I chucked this in, Andrew, because I wanted to give people a, a chance to uh, give us an idea as well. Now, I believe we've got seven or eight principles of high yields that we recently talked about on the podcast. But what I want to know, what I want to ask you is what do you think the number one factor that points to a high yielding property is? And I'm going to tee up another poll and talk about these indicators of high yields. I'm going to launch that now. What ones have we got here? Let's just scroll down and see them. What have we got, Andrew? The indicators are lower socioeconomic location, a low purchase price, multiple income streams, or the quality of property. So what do you think our number one indicator is for finding those high yield properties. And I'm just going to scooch out of my way this little thing. And once we had a couple of hundred people uh, answering that, we've got had about 500 people have just answered that. Uh, once we hit 600, we'll chuck it across. And just while you're screen. doing that, James Wu's just asked the uh, link for the calculator. So it is available on our website, but we will include that in the email that goes out tomorrow. Is that right? Yep, absolutely. We will do that as well to make sure that goes out. Cool. You know, I do think, Andrew, that a lot of people underestimate goal setting. It sometimes gets a bit boring. You say, oh, I've heard this before. But when you do it right, it's so it's so important, as we'll see. Right, I'm going to... Well, I, I also... I also think the other part, sorry to interrupt there, Ed, but you did it to me. Um, I also think the other part is often people don't realise, you know, how, how achievable it is. So someone's actually asked a question here uh, along the lines of, I'm, I'm 57, am I too, is it too late to achieve my goal? Look, I mean, that's that's something that you've got to work with a property partner to kind of figure out because it depends what your goal is. But, um, you know, if, if you find that, hey, by, um, by having a modest goal, uh, it's achievable, then at least you're probably going to get started doing it. And, and look, any amount to fill that gap um, that most people have is better than nothing. Great. Well, let's share that poll as well. And actually, just before we, I do, um, we're going to share an example at the end of somebody who is a single person at 60 years old and the plan that we would use for their specific situation. But here are the results. So 6% of you think uh, a lower socioeconomic location is the main indicator. 16% uh, say low purchase price. 68% say multiple income streams, so a multi-income property. And 10% say quality of property. Now, most of you are absolutely correct. Now, we often say multi-income is the main factor we'll look at. So, Andrew, take us through two examples of kind of high-yielding properties that somebody who's looking to live off their property portfolio might end up purchasing. Not cash. Yeah, sorry. And until retirement. Sorry, I'm just answering Calvin's, uh, Calvin's uh, message. Um, I'll come back to you, Calvin. Um, room by room rental. So this was a development we did, I think this one's in Inverness Road from the top of my head in Hamilton. Um, so this is a block of five units and four of them were uh, uh, five bedroom four-bedroom, four-bedroom units in a self-contained uh, uh, bedroom. So you'll see you've got, um, each of them's got its own uh, ensuite, it's got a kitchenette, uh, we laundry area, um, and, oh sorry, the laundry is shared, but then you've got your common area, I'm pointing at the screen realising none of you can see me doing this actually, um, which is a bit ridiculous, so everyone's got their own uh, area, and these are really common among students, so um, often you'll find a lot of these in Hamilton close to the university or near near to the, um, the hospital there, so you can get quite a high rent for these because you rent them out at $250, give or take, $260 per room rather than renting out the whole house. 
Now, the purchase price on these for our investors that got on those, and now, before anyone asks, if you want to buy one of these, you need a time machine because it was a year ago. 729000 was the purchase price on those. The rent per week, uh, again, was two sixty per room, so one oh four oh per week. Um, operating cost, 2%. Mortgage cost, so I'm going to say zero because this is something that, again, you'd buy when you've got the cash to be able to do it. So you'd get to a point where you're selling down some of those houses that you've bought and, and held on to for the last 15 years, sold them, paid 729 cash for it, and now you've got almost $40,000 of positive cash flow, net yield of 5.4%. Our target's normally 4% net yield, so this was great. And dual care apartments. So if anyone hasn't seen the deal um, uh, and you're in lockdown, you've got no choice but to watch that over the next few days. Uh, uh, these are these are where you buy an apartment and you'll have two individual apartments on one title. So it can be rented out individually or it can be rented out separately. So in this case, you'll see that you've got a studio. There we go, studio apartment on that side, all self-contained. And then on the other side, you've got a one-bedroom apartment. Again, because you're buying this as one unit essentially you're paying a lower price for essentially two units the numbers on this um, and actually I do have some of these still available if anyone is interested in them next page Ed I don't have the numbers on them, but I know what it is. It's a 5.5% oh, oh, gross oh, yield. Oh, oh, I can tell you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So these ones here were um, not about 935000 is kind of the starting price on those. Uh, and the rent's about $1,000 a week on these. Um, and um, they've got relatively low costs. I think the body corporate on them is about 35 um, Rates, I think I said 35 but that's probably a bit high. Um, uh, did I say the rental? On, uh, rental $1,000 probably actually a bit low. And these were in Allersley, great location. Now, it's important to note as well, when you're transitioning that portfolio, it's not a simple switch, is it? No. So just remember, if you've built up your assets, so you, you bought um, five rental properties. Uh, uh, yes, Richard, there are. Um, if you buy a whole bunch of houses and you hold on to them and you're paying interest only, the debt's going to stay the same, but the, the value is going to go up. And this is something that actually a lot of investors really struggle with. Because if they're not paying down debt, they think, well, how the hell do I get ahead? Well, that's when you transition. So you sell those properties at a later date and uh, you pay any costs associated with the sale. So we always say 5%, which is a pretty conservative number to factor in because by the time you pay your agent's fees, you might have a little bit of vacancy. There might be some staging costs. There'll be some legal costs. There might be a break fee on the mortgage. You tend to end up with 95% that you can put in as cash into yield-based properties. And we always recommend that you kind of want to allow five years to transition. And look, that's that's not a hard and fast rule. It's just because you don't want to necessarily be thinking about this all at one time. And it, you know, let's say you, you were based in Christchurch, you'd bought five properties in Christchurch and, and you all of a sudden decide, okay, now I'm going to retire. Well, it might not be the optimum time in the market to actually sell those properties. Fantastic. So what we've done so far is we've just got on the same page with all of the key concepts. We've talked about some different ways, some different strategies in order to be able to live off our portfolio. That's the retirement strategy and the passive income strategy. We've talked about that we might sell down our growth properties over time and buy high yielding properties, paying off that debt so we can live off that property portfolio. We've got a broad understanding of what goal we might head for. What I wanted to do, because Jake and my team said to me, Ed, 
You really needed just two case studies. That's what people want. And so I said, okay, Jake, okay. You, you, this you, is for you, Jake. This is for you. So I've got three um, different scenarios and we'll take you through a spreadsheet. These are um, loosely based off people that we've either worked with or who we've spoken with in the past. So these are kind of pretty good situations. Andrew, why Based on a true story. Why don't you introduce... Uh, number one, and then I'll share the spreadsheet and we'll go through the strategies these people actually used in order or are using to achieve their goals. And Calvin, this kind of goes to your point because, uh, look, these people had started out um, on their journey, but uh, but lots of people that I've worked with uh, maybe haven't and, and that's okay. As you get older, you've also got to remember you don't necessarily have to sell everything all at once and there's other ways of kind of planning out the sales which we're going to talk about. So couple, age 55, they want to retire in, in five more years, so 60, so that they've got heaps of time to enjoy their money. Goal of 100k a year, today's dollars. And I see there's been lots of questions about inflation. Yes, we're inflation adjusting. Always, always. <laughs> Um, and their current plan um, was they had three rental properties, which they'd bought at various stages of different cycles, so there was equity in them, and they were going to downsize their own house because there was lots of equity in that. They had a big house and didn't need to have that big a house later on down the track. So what I want to show you now is I want to show you kind of the before and after of what these people wanted to do. So let's look at case study number one. So they want an income of 100k per year. They've got five years to hit it. And so in today's dollars, the number of assets that they are going to need to have is 2.5 mil. Of course, that will go up over time. Now, let's look at what they are currently on track for. Now, I have put KiwiSaver in here, but of course, what's important to note when you are planning out uh, your position for the long term is these people want to retire at 60. So this KiwiSaver is actually not going to be available at 60, so I'm going to take it out. So that's going to take the level of assets that they actually have available. Now, I've put in here some amount of downsizing. So I've said 500k in today's dollars, but we'll inflate that over time. These people, as we said, had three investment properties. They, they're actually in a great position because their only hunger property was worth 750k. That was 12 months ago. They will have done very well over the last 12 months. Um, no mortgage on that. So that's really positive. Uh, they had a Christchurch property, 630, uh, but quite a bit of debt against that, 570. It was a relatively recent purchase. And another one uh, in Christchurch, 542 and uh, you know good mortgage size mortgage on that as well uh, and weren't accounting for any superannuation of course because weren't 65 yet so can't include that within the plan now when we look at that they need 2.5 mil to achieve what they want to achieve the net assets they're on track for are about 1.75 and so we've got a bit of a gap so we're not quite there and so what uh, Andrew did, because Andrew is the financial planner, I just make the numbers work, is uh, we built another plan. Now, what's important to note as well is that while downsizing was included within this specific couple's plan, they didn't really want to use it. It was there because they uh, you know, potentially could trade down that house, but it wasn't the ideal situation if they didn't have to. So what we did in that case... Is we, I, mean, I actually love what we did here. What these people really needed was they needed time. So their goal what date was five years away, right, Andrew? Which is not very long. Yes. And so what we said was, how could we get that number up? And so what we did was we used a bit of a hybrid plan. 
So what I've said here is let's build out a plan where they can sell one property and take their KiwiSaver, and I'll take you through the notes and what that means, but let's take set up a plan where they can live off these assets for 10 years while the rest of their plan is still taking time. So what I really mean by that is when we think about what we were talking about before over here, and we said it was a bit of an either or, what we're really talking about is let's put them on 10 years over here, giving them the income they want, and then transitioning them over here because their assets will have more time to appreciate. So I'll show you what we did. We said, well, let's sell that only hunger property in five years. Let's take that KiwiSaver out at year by the time they hit 65. Those total assets, a million dollars. So really good position. That's going to give them 10 years living at 100k each. And of course, we'd expect that when they cash out of those assets, they'll put them into maybe a fund that goes up at 2% per year, very conservative fund, um, so that they are preserving the value of that money. And then what that allows them to do is come over here and I've got rid of their KiwiSaver because we've now spent that. I've got rid of the lump sum, the downsizing. We've said, look, let's not downsize at all. And then I've said something really interesting. So this plan starts at 70, uh, at 55 and goes to the age that this couple are 70. So what I've said is, well, by the time you hit 65, you're going to start getting New Zealand superannuation. So let's take that superannuation and let's put it into a, a balanced managed fund for those five years. So the five years from when you get super until you need this plan to start working from you. And that's going to allow you to save that money and build up a level of assets. And that's a really cool little technique to use if you plan to work past 65. You can take that superannuation and use it to pay down debt or whatever it happens to be because that's not means tested. So really important to note that as well. And you'll see how we use that in uh, case study number three as well. So we're doing something quite cool here. We've added in two extra properties to help get those assets up. And of course, now we're looking at 15 years worth of appreciation. So I'm pretty happy with that. We've added in perhaps a 900k Auckland property and an additional 650 Christchurch property, 100% um, debt, and their other two properties as well. We've got those chugging along and we're all happy. And what I've done as well is I've added in, since this plan starts at uh, the time that they are 70, I've said, let's add one person on superannuation. Um, of course, they they initially didn't want to put superannuation in here at all, but we don't think that it'll probably be taken away by the time that these guys hit you know, 65. They're only 10 years away. But let's only put one person in because, of course, then when they eventually do drop down to one person on New Zealand super, hey, that's going to be okay. So let's look at the level of assets. Well, because we've increased the time, these people now, the level of assets they need to achieve their goal is 1.84, and the assets they're on track to have is about 2 mil. So we're pretty happy with this. Of course, the reason that the number of assets needed has gone down is we've included some super in there, which takes it down. So it's pretty cool. Anything to jump in around this, Andrew, in terms of living off this or how they'd transition across? Uh, no, no. I just want to say hi to Logan, and um, and Logan wants to know where your pink flamingo, uh, where your, where the pink flamingo blazer was hoping it would make an appearance. No, I, uh, my pink flamingo blazer. Oh, I do have it. Well, if you stick around for questions, Logan, we'll show you at the end. <laughs> 
So I guess the key message here is these people are not at the stage where they're transitioning yet. But the cool thing here is you can use both of those strategies, essentially. You can sell one property down, potentially, if it's right for you. If that's the right decision, sell it down, live off it while some of your other assets are appreciating still so that you can move across to this passive income strategy. And I will just point out, sorry, because I'm getting a few questions around how you buy properties um, uh, when you're retired. You are buying these with cash. So just to clarify for anyone that missed that part, if you're building up your assets over time, when you're running the race, normally that's when you're accumulating your, your property portfolio. When you get to the finishing the race or crossing over the finish line, that's when you're selling those, taking the 95% um, that you get after you've paid your real estate agent, paying off all the mortgages and then buying high yielding with cash. And I mean, just to show you this, I mean, for, for the real nerds as well, um, when we're looking at value of properties, I'll just highlight it, we're taking 95% of the value of that property. So taking out those sale costs. I want to show you a different way that you can live off your property portfolio as well, which is a pretty cool strategy that I'll just come down to. And uh, I know the people who this is loosely based on uh, would actually are uh, probably on the call tonight. So Andrew, introduce this scenario for us. Next is another couple um, wanting to retire early uh, and, and they're 44 at the moment and they're wanting to retire at the tender age of 52. Their goal, we're going to work on $90,000 a year of today's money. And their current plan for investment properties. So um, someone just asked the question that I answered before just to, to reiterate this for anyone that missed that. Never include your owner-occupied in, in your plan unless you're downsizing it. And, and just remember, be realistic when you say downsizing because lots of people sell their um, house with a big section and go and buy an apartment for $2 million in Ponsonby or something like that. So you might not necessarily have cash left over. The person in the first, the couple in the first example, they absolutely were going to downsize and get some cash out. But in this case, they're not going to downsize. Now this couple's a really interesting one because while they want to retire at 52 what they really want to do is continue part-time working but they want to go overseas they want to start volunteering and uh, they they want to teach uh, diving schools I think they want they want to be diving instructors so there'll still be some level of income but they want to get an income from property. Now usually if you want to retire at 52 at that age uh, sorry, if you want to retire at 52, you'd probably need a significant level of assets. But these guys, they don't need the full 90k to be funded out of these properties. Now, of course, we're not using anybody's specific situation. We are changing them slightly so you can't identify them. But I just want to show you how this couple might do it. Now, we've said here, they've got eight years until their goal and 50k is what we're going to say. So what I mean by that is we're going to take 50k being funded from investment properties and the other 40k that we talked about, that might be funded by some part-time work, some dive instructing, those kinds of things that they really want to be doing, but they want the financial independence to not be tied to their jobs. Now, what's interesting here, Andrew, is that we've used a 3% net yield. Now, do you just want to explain why we've used a 3% net yield here for their properties as opposed to a 4%? So in this case, um, these guys have built up uh, uh, properties which are which are generally speaking higher growth. Now, 
if they're higher growth, we want to be able to keep those for as long as possible. So, so owning high growth property for five years isn't going to change the world. Owning it for 20 years is going to make a huge difference. So what we've done here is we've said just hold on to those growth properties so that that can satisfy the wealth we need later, remembering that we're just going to have the, the lower yield on it. Exactly. So again, because they're retiring really young, no KiwiSaver in there, no lump sums, not applicable, but they do have some property. So these guys had lower hut, 800k there, 400k mortgage against that. And I'm actually planning to sell this one shortly in this specific plan, and I'll show you why. Uh, a live-in property, 450k, 200k mortgage in there, bit of appreciation still to go. That owned that one for a wee while. Carpety Coast, another property in here. So we've got three properties I think were chucked in there. Oh, there were four, sorry. And a Christchurch, which had recently been purchased, 650, 650. So 650 current value, 650 current mortgage on there. Now, in this one, of course, we are also not using any superannuation because they're really young. Now, the strategy for these guys to be able to do it is we do need to reduce that debt a bit once we hit the eight-year mark. And so what we need to do is probably sell this lower hut property potentially and also then take that and pay down some of that debt so that we're able to get the 3% net yield on those standalone properties. So this is a really good example of when you wouldn't transition to yield straight away, but you would be able to still achieve your goals. So 50k funded from those properties, funding the rest of that 90k lifestyle by some part-time work, but they're able to get on track for those level of net assets without purchasing anything further within those eight years. Which is pretty cool when you think about it. If you're 44 and you're on track to retire by 52 and, and go and do what you want. Like, it's pretty cool. Uh, any other notes in there? No. But what you also... I just, I just want... Jump in, Andrew. Sorry, Ed, I just want to... Uh, there's been a couple of questions, again, just themes as I'm picking up um, while I'm reading uh, uh, notes uh, from people. I think there's ju just around this one here, what's a little bit different is these guys... We use the word retirement. I like the way you spelt first up there. Um, uh, we talk about retirement, but really this is kind of about financial freedom. I like that you're changing it straight away. Financial freedom, which which might not be stopping working. Um, so if Ed and I, if Ed um, won uh, lotto next week, he doesn't buy lotto tickets, so it's very unlikely, but if he won lotto next week, he would be in the office yelling at all the staff on Monday morning, um, waking them up for the Monday morning meeting because he loves what he does. How could he not? And um, so, so often when we talk about retirement, we're just talking about maybe just giving you a few more options. So that's why sometimes the ages might be younger than the traditional retirement age. Sorry, keep going, Ed. 100%. And the other thing is I wanted to kind of uh, inspire you with some pretty cool stories as well. So these guys, of course, at some point, you know, they kind of stop officially working at 52. But at some point, you probably want to actually retire, quote unquote, properly. So what I've done here is do a scenario as well where they retire at 65 with done what we said before, we've taken some of those sale proceeds from the first um, property that we've sold off and paid some debt and some debt. And I've actually put up the desired income in today's dollars to 100k. I've also increased that net yield now because we're actually ready to step away from work properly. Um, so bang in some keys, they have 100k there, um, but not contributing to it since they're going to be uh, away from work over that time, uh, you know, not actively contributing to it. That lower hut property that we talked about, that's no longer in it, but still got that live-in, but with no mortgage because we've paid that off. 
Kapiti Coast property, Christchurch, and I banged in one person superannuation at 65, not the two as well. Just just for a bit of a buffer, I guess, to make sure that, hey, there is enough buffer in here. And you can see they're well over the level of assets that they actually need um, to make sure that they're actually on track for it. And so that's a pretty cool scenario as well, just to talk about how you might use property a wee bit differently as well. And let's go through one more as well. For somebody who's a wee bit later on in life, why don't you just walk us through this? Uh, so this was um, a single lady uh, who was wanting to uh, retire, uh, 60 years old, wanting to retire at 67, so a really, really short runway. Um, uh, goal was $85,000 a year. And the current plan, one investment property, and um, actually, this person didn't end up working with us. Uh, just, just wasn't actually um, something that that they ended up wanting to do. I think from memory, is that right, Ed? Yeah, I can't remember what happened, but that's okay. But it was an interesting story because the thing about this um, lady was she was on a really high income, but was really worried about taking on a lot of debt. So we had to think a little bit differently um, than what we otherwise might have done. So one strategy would have been to think about. Um, what these guys did up here. So selling that one property if it had enough equity in it and then buying a whole, he a whole heap of others. But she didn't really want to do that. That didn't sit well with her. So here's what we decided to do instead. Well, you still need to be able to create a, a lot of equity. And you can see here, just based on her situation, she, she needed quite a number of assets to get to where she really wanted to be. And the interesting thing was she was on a really good income, like, like, really, really good, top 2%, 180K, um, contributing towards that, that KiwiSaver. She had the one investment property, but no other savings. And that was really the issue, that she hadn't built up enough assets yet, even though she did have one investment property, which had done pretty well, worth 700K and 250. So what did we have in here? No other properties, but we did have superannuation coming in at that point. So we had to think a wee bit more creatively. Now, here's what we did it would, would have done, I suppose, in that specific situation. The first thing, we would have kept superannuation as it was, but once she hit that superannuation age in uh, that, that time frame in five years' time, put that money, of course, away into NZ superannuation, they'd get extra 40K. That property that she had, keep that the same. But what we decided was probably the best strategy here is purchase two more properties. And I've got two Christchurch Central. But the thing that's different from some of the other properties I've shown you is using the strategy where she would go onto principal and interest at 3% with a shorter time period, 20 years, but paying it down very aggressively. So in her situation, she'd be paying down an extra $500 a week on both properties. So paying down really aggressively, $1,000 a week across two properties to push those mortgages down. Now, in that scenario, that would mean that she'd actually have quite a bit of equity at the goal date in seven years' time because that mortgage would be reduced um, quite significantly on both properties. And in this situation, we were able to get her just over that line to get to 85k and move there. But the thing that I really am trying to get across, I suppose, with all of these situations is that the right strategy really can depend. So while we've set up in the first half hour of this webinar was all about here are the strategy, here's the game plan, build up your level of assets, sell them all, buy some high yielding properties. There are some cool things you can do in order to be able to make a strategy work for your specific situation. And what's going to work for you is going to be different from what's going to work from Andrew or myself, because it's going to be 
a little bit different. So these people were able uh, in the scenario to be able to achieve what they want without actually having to compromise and downsize. It takes some creative thinking, but they're able to do it. These people over here, again, able to achieve what you want, but doing it in quite a creative way as well in terms of mixing the part-time work with living off the property portfolio. And this person then using quite a different strategy, again, paying down debt quite aggressively. Now, just walk us through one other strategy which some people can use that we're throwing in as a bonus, Andrew, for people who maybe haven't got that level of assets but might own their own home. And actually, this is perfect timing because I was just typing an answer to someone around how does Ilse's uh, strategy kind of fit into it, which is the buy and renovate. Um, put a minor dwelling on the back of your house. So if you've got a house at the moment and you've got some extra land, you can potentially put a minor dwelling on the back of it or, or a cabin, as you might have seen. Might be a nominal cost to a cabin or something, but if you do a minor dwelling, it might cost a couple of hundred thousand, but generate $500 a week. So a lot of people kind of leading up to their retirement might say, okay, well, I'll do that now. Or I'll put that on there, rent it out at $500 a week, generate some income, pay down the debt, and then I can live off that. I've got an extra $500 coming in a week to supplement the other income. So if you've got some extra land, start doing that. And of course, this is going to potentially become very popular after the government's announcement today, which I'm sure there'll be a couple of questions about in the Q&A. Now, look, what have we done? We've talked about how to set some goals in order to figure out how much income you're actually going to need, what the sort of strategies you're going to need to use. We've talked about a broad game plan for how to move across, what sort of properties you're going to need. And then we've also done a whole heap of case studies in order to be able to figure out what is actually going to work to you. Now, what we're going to do now is we are going to go into a Q&A, but I know that some of you know us, you've listened to the podcast and you know everything about what we do. And some of you listening tonight are here for the first time. So I always like to end with a wee, wee message from our sponsor, uh, us here at Opus Partners. So if you've never met us before, you might be wondering, what do these guys even do? And we're what we call property partners. And that essentially does three things. We know that a lot of people want to invest in property here in New Zealand, but it can be really tough to get the knowledge and know, where do I even start with this thing? And so we do three things that help people and give them the confidence to give property investment a go. Give them the guts, give people the guts to give it a go. So we do three things. We help you plan out your property portfolio. You've seen a bit of this tonight, but we've also got an in-house piece of software we use, but we plan out people's portfolios. We then help pick those properties that fit with that plan and then dig into the details to confirm, hey, yes, this is actually the right property for me. So it's about planning and then finding the right properties. And uh, people always ask, what is this actually? cost we don't charge for this service and we can talk more about this in Q&A if it's interesting for people but essentially the way it works is once we find the right properties for people we're then able to charge the person who currently owns that property so it's actually offered on a complimentary basis now if you'd like to work with us if you think oh yeah I'll come in and plan out a bit of a portfolio with these guys then the next step is to meet for what we call a portfolio planning session and that's where we use our in-house software which you can see on the right hand side it's called My Wealth Plan and uh, we plan out a portfolio, find a way to fix those goals and help you get on that path to what you want to do. Now, if you'd like to come along to that, I'm going to run one more poll. And all you do is if you'd like to come see us, you hit the top one, which says, yes, please uh, call me to book in a session. If you don't want to see us, if it's not the right time or you already know who we are, then just press the bottom one, the one that says, nope, I'm good right now. So if you want to come see us, hit the top one. If you don't, hit the bottom one. And that's no trouble as well. Um, 
quite a few of you might have already seen us, um, or it might not be right for you, and that's cool too. So I'll just give you that opportunity now coming across your screens. John, just to answer your question, we're everywhere. We've got um, uh, people, property partners all over the country, and uh, we we use this amazing tool called Zoom now. It's um, changed my life in terms of travel. So uh, p- uh, potentially, no matter where you are in the world, um, we can help you out. Fantastic. Now, last things that I want to talk about as well, just as we go there. I just want to give you three more pieces of content that you can use in order to be able to learn more about property. The first thing, of course, is you can use that calculator we talked about. Here's the link here, opuspartners.co.nz slash calculator slash living hyphen cost. They will also send that in the email that goes out tomorrow. Also, listen to the Property Academy podcast. This is the number one business podcast in the country, number one property podcast, and we release a new show every single day. 10 to 15 minutes long to teach you something new about property investment right here in New Zealand. Episode number 768 went live today. Uh, And also, we've just started our YouTube channel or started really honing in on our YouTube channel. And we release a new video on Wednesday. We're currently doing a six-part series about the new interest deductibility rules. So if you want to check that out, Just Google Opus Partners YouTube. It'll be the first thing that comes up. But look, let's run now into a QA and a and ask you, what else would you like to know? What else would you like to know? I've done 41 of them. So I've I've been hot on the keyboard tonight. How good. What's coming up for you, Andrew? What questions have we got going? Um, Well, actually, so I sent you an article, Ed, when I was at the lawyers um, about the changes that came out today. I haven't read it yet. Have you read it? I've read the article, but I haven't watched the press conference or the details. Yeah. So, but I will jump into it. Okay. Cool. Will, I'll just dismiss those ones related to that. Go for it. I'll you always go for it. I'll always talk about it. So, <laughs> no. So, what this is 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 a bipartisan approach. So, National and Labor are coming out and saying, "Hey, we want to reform the RMA, the Resource Management Act." And this has been signalled. We've been talking about this for probably the last six months because we all know that one of the big things that stops us from going out and um, building property is council regulation. So what they're looking to do is to decrease the amount of resource consent you need depending on the sort of properties. And my understanding is that it is three properties on a section and three stories as well. Now, this is going to provide some really great opportunities for people who have got larger parcels of land because you're potentially going to be able to build on that land much more easily. Now, I did get a question actually from Greg Fisher, who's a long-time listener of the show and friend of the show. Hi, Greg, you're probably here today, saying, is this the end for capital growth? Is this the end <laughs> of That's, house I'm just answering increases? a question about this. Hey, well, it's not the f- I was typing, it's not the first time we've heard uh, big promises like this. Well, that is true as well, Andrew, but the, I, w- <laughs> I would say no. The number of times um, that... People think that, you know, it's going to be the end of house price increases. The reason is, what is the number one constraint right now that's stopping houses being built, apart from regulation? What would you say, Andrew? Sorry, I was not listening. I was replying to a message He always does this to me. He never listens (laughs) to me. Joy, message me. So let me ask you the question. What's the number one thing stopping... What's the number one thing stopping a lot of houses being built? Finance. I'd say finance, availability of labour and construction costs as well. 
um, the availability of people to actually build these properties. So until we can solve all parts of the supply chain in property, we're still going to see shortages. Um, I was interesting, I was speaking to the uh, Bay of Plenty Times the other day, and they were talking about uh, which areas were most vulnerable. And the thing I said to uh, Zoe was the, the lovely reporter's name I spoke to, and I said, here's the thing, Zoe. In Tauranga, you've got 33% population growth over the next 25 years. So walk down the street, and for every house you see, for every three houses you see, we're going to need another one in 25 years. For every three cars you see, we're going to need another one. For every three people you pass, there's going to be another one in 25 years. Now, the key thing to remember is that while we do need, we need a lot of houses to be built. We need a lot of it. And so I think this is a great thing that we're seeing REMA reform, which is going to allow more properties to be built. And actually, it's going to improve the value of the land that is underneath your property. Why? Because you can now do more with it. So look, I want to do some more numbers, looking at the exact numbers behind what's being suggested, when it's going to come in. But my first cursory glance is, while there will be some effects that, okay, we're going to have more supply, that might mean that rather than 6% or 8% capital growth, like we've seen in the past, we might have a more measured amount, a four or a five, there's got to be some good things in here for you as well, especially if you currently own your own house with a bit of land, because there's soon going to be more things you can do with it. It's going to be more valuable. Andrew, what other things are coming up with you? Um, I'll come back to uh, Dion's question. Um, uh, so there's a few things I've written down. So someone, Bernard asked uh, earlier on, about serviceability, so said, "Hey, look, I've got good good uh, uh, equity. Um, my serviceability limits my ability to stretch myself from an LVR perspective." And someone else had something along the same theme. So, um, look, there are some things like non-bank lenders you could use. We've got some tips for serviceability, and that kind of goes to my next point. Um, there's a, a, a treasure trove of information on our website. So, under Learn to Invest on the Opus Partners website, you can go to past webinars and past. Uh, podcast. In the podcast, just type in service, uh, serviceability or service and you'll find a whole bunch of things on that um, and, and uh, maybe type non-bank um, might have that or, or uh, who was the guy that we had come in? It. Oh, you're talking to me. Fine. Are yeah, you, yeah, are you yeah. Who was the guy? The well, I wasn't asking Bernard. He, doesn't, he can't talk back. Are um, you talking about Luke Jackson? Luke Jackson, thank you. Type Luke Jackson in. Um, uh, uh, Carrie Fountain asked, um, how does this kind of work with a GGGY or, or a wealth wheel uh, um, concept? So um, great question, Carrie. When you're building out your portfolio, I guess the key thing is you focus on growth properties until you tap yourself out in terms of um, what your contributions can be. So, you know, if you can afford to get three growth properties and um, did we do this in the last webinar or did we do it on a podcast recently? Last webinar, right? Yeah last webinar so you can jump on and watch the past webinar where we talk about building that wealth where if anyone's thinking what the hell is he talking about so you buy your three growth properties for example in these instances, we were focusing on growth properties because a lot of these investors have been working with us for quite a long time. Um, so, so therefore, they, they could buy growth while the interest rates were low, and then as values gone up and rents gone up, they're all they're all sorted. Uh, sorry, what I mean by they're all sorted is uh, it doesn't actually matter. Um, but at some stage, it's natural if you're building a portfolio to add on a yield in there as well, and you just adjust that in your plan. So, if if your third property is a yield property, for example, then you'd use a lower capital growth rate because when you're cashing in uh, then then 
um, the, you, you're going to have less growth on that property, generally speaking. Uh, retirement, financial freedom. Um, oh, someone asked more. There were a couple of questions about how we make our money. So just to make sure that I've covered all this off. So our coaching service is free. Um, all of the webinars are free. The podcasts are free. All the articles are free. And all the information on the website is free. The way we make our money is we've got a real estate company. We've got a property management company. We've got a magazine. Um, we've got lots of subsidiary things like accounting, mortgage broking that generates income. So we can do we can afford to do all of this stuff for free. Um, a great question from friend of the show, Danny. Danny, great to see you. So she said, would interest be deductible on the minor dwelling if you're still living in the main property? Now, Danny, the interest on the minor dwelling is going to be deductible anyway. The reason behind that is that if you're building it, it's going to be a new build. So it comes under the new build exemption, even if the property that you're the land, you already own that and it's got an existing property on it. The other thing that's really interesting to note that we didn't talk about earlier in the show is that, uh, the show, the webinar, is that uh, even if you buy, if you're going down this yield strategy, and you are purchasing with cash, then it doesn't actually matter whether you're purchasing existing properties or new builds, because you're buying without debt. So because of that, you're paying the tax anyway. There's no difference in terms of the tax you pay because in terms of the interest deductibility rules that are coming out. So it's just cool, really cool actually to just note that, um, that that won't have a difference in that specific one. Now, here's an interesting one that somebody's asked. Do you think if I build a minor dwelling on my property, is that going to affect the growth potential of my property and make it harder to sell, Andrew? I wish I was listening to that one here and didn't get caught out by typing another thing. Tell me again while I, while I um, um, answer anonymous attendees uh, separately. So do you think a minor dwelling may affect the growth potential that a property has and make it harder to sell in the future? Great question. Uh, I do think that you can't um, bank on, say, a 5% cap capital growth rate on that uh, minor dwelling. Um, just work on the 5% of the original house. If, and and if you turn your house into two separate dwellings, two two-bedroom units, if it's permanently like that, that can uh, absolutely maybe slow down. It's, it's, it's very much a fit-for-purpose thing. It's a student accommodation at that stage. So you do have to be a bit careful with that. The thing that I'd recommend there is that, let's say you moved out of your house and you said, look, I really want to keep it, and it's got great growth potential because it's in Ponsonby, but I'm not going to get enough rent um, uh, with, the, with the tax changes to make this all worthwhile. What you could do, maybe, is you could divide it into three units but have them as temporary uh, new units so that you can change them back later on. I've seen an investor be very successful with that. But I do think you've got to be a little bit careful. Now, another anonymous attendee has said, is the townhouses, are townhouses the only thing you can buy in today's market? And the answer is no, of course it's not. Oh, that's what, well, I, was, that's what I was just typing well, in. Go, go for it. So I said, no, it uh, just depends what you're looking for. If you've got lots of cash, then you can buy even anything. So if you've got if you've got a million dollars to invest and you came to see me and I said and you said, look, I, I just want them to be neutrally geared. Well, great, we'll put that million dollars into five investment properties, two hundred grand in each, and we can go out and buy some houses. But what you'll find is if you say you're working with one of my property partners and they said, hey, look, these are these are townhouses, uh, for example, that's probably because uh, the purchase price is relatively low compared to the rent, which is a bit higher. So okay, well that that kind 
kind of works. So we are definitely in a time where um, house prices have jumped up, but rents maybe haven't jumped up as quickly. And so it kind of does limit what people can buy. Similarly, you know, if you were buying a house in Rolleston, which is one of my, one of my favourite old topics, and I saw um, someone comment about that before. If you bought it a year ago, you're paying five fifty. If you bought it today, you're paying eight hundred. And the rent might have gone from say five twenty five, and it might be six hundred next year. But you know, there there is a a widening gap. So. If you're borrowing 100%, that might not be the right option for you anymore. So a townhouse in Auckland could be a better option, for example. But I can't really be sure until we know your exact uh, situation. Um, but there, you can buy anything uh, and you can make anything work, but you just got to have more cash. <laughs> and next question as well. Actually, I disagree with you on that, Andrew, because not everything is going... It, be my guest. Things will might work in terms of if you've got uh, uh, let's say a really expensive property, something in, in Ponsonby that's $2 million and maybe rents for, I don't know, $800, $1,000, whatever. It's it's not going to be a very good investment property necessarily. The cash flow might work if you bought it with a lot of, uh, with a large deposit of cash. That's so the I mean. cash that's flow might work. Doesn't make it a good property though. Now I think we're probably on the no, same no, page because no, no, no. we're basically no, each no. other's spirit you, animal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, now, exactly. Stephen, Stephen's got a great question. Is a townhouse Robert regarded... Robert Downey Jr. is going to be upset by that. Stephen says, is ta- a townhouse regarded... You see, I just ignore him. Is a townhouse regarded as high <laughs> yield or a high growth property? Well, Stephen, it depends where it is. So if it was somewhere like... Uh, I was speaking to the, uh, the Bay of Plenty Times the other day uh, about Carwado. Kawaro is a, a, a tiny little district in the North Island in the Bay of Plenty where the population is expected to decrease by 25% over the next uh, 25 years. So that means that when you walk down the street and every four houses you see, soon one won't be needed because we're going to have fewer people living there. So build a townhouse in uh, Kawaro, I would say it's going to be very low growth. Uh, that property market is well overvalued. It's probably not going to do very well. Build the same property in the middle of central Auckland Maybe a Parnell, maybe uh, we, we recently did some properties in St. Helias, and I would consider that a growth. So it's not just the property type itself, it's also where is that property located. If it's in Christchurch, we'd usually call it a growth. If it was in Invercargill, I might not call it a growth property. So it, it can just depend on where that location is. What 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 are you looking at right now, Andrew? Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna do a couple. Kelly Kelly's asked the question. I feel like you're largely preferencing new builds over existing for for investments. Our existing is not a great option. Um, Kelly, absolutely, we are favouring those. That is probably what uh, one of the key uh, things that we focus on in the business. We do focus on new builds, and there's a whole range of reasons. But the government's new interest deductibility uh, makes buying an existing property unless you're going to renovate the hell out of it or you're going to use a whole lot of cash just not really work out that well so um, absolutely we are um, but but it is the right thing to do if you want to know more about that you can you can contact us and we'll we'll, we'll fill you in on Wait hours of content on that I've right. got to, I've got to have an argument with him as well because we do have a whole renovation side to our business as well so oh, sorry sorry if Elsa's on this I'm dead well so one thing that's important to note though is existing properties work but only if you renovate them and really renovate I them think to I increase said that. the cash flow. 
So they definitely do work. What we tend to not favour as much is purchasing an existing property and renting it out as is or doing very minor cosmetic uh, renovations, replacing the carpet, giving it a I believe that's what I said. It's I not think you're you gaslighting said. me. You say, you say that I didn't say something and just come back in and uh, do it. I, I mean, you're using my own tricks against me now. There was another really interesting one here that I saw. Uh, actually, someone, so I answered something and then someone asked it again. Oh, someone asked whether or not, um, when's the right time to start paying down uh, investment debt? Now, look, um, I personally will never pay off my investment debt unless I sell a property. So I pay down investment debt by selling properties rather than paying it off with my hard-earned cash. Um, and it is hard-earned. Look at what I do with Ed. Um, and so, so, so the strategy for me is always buy two, sell one in 15 years, pay off the other. Um, some people do pay down debt, but everyone's only got a limited amount of cash flow that they've got per week. So often if you're paying principal and interest on investments, you'll find that you're limited to how many you can buy. So that's that's kind of the main concept on that. But again, you can hear a lot of the past things that we've rattled on about interest only uh, on the podcast. Now, there's a great question as well from James that I'll just answer, who said, is it, a, is it still worth having a chat with you guys there at Opus, even if your owner-occupier is basically the banks? So we've got a massive mortgage on our <laughs> owner-occupier. Is it still worth coming in? Now, what I would usually say is that portfolio planning session best thing to do is to have that when you're in the position to do something because the plan will change otherwise so what i'd recommend in that situation james is probably either a have a chat to our mortgage brokers at catalyst financial have a little look to see whether you might be able to do something but if not what i'd say no trouble Come along with the, on the journey with us and listen to the webinars and the podcasts. Uh, read the articles online because we're really here to help you as well. Uh, great question that I want to get your thoughts on, Andrew, from anonymous attendee. Yep. Can I answer? Can I ask you that? I just want to make sure it? you're listening for me. Yeah, I'm listening. Oh, oh, right, right, right. Yes, I, I, I thought it must be something terribly personal, and I was quickly scar- uh, flicking through things, thinking, what's he going to ask me next? So my partner and I are 27 in Auckland, and we both have got an investment property each separately. I settled in January. She's about to settle uh, both properties in Auckland. First of all, great, by the way. Awesome. How soon can we combine our equity to get into our first home together? So how could we use that as a springboard to get into our first property? Uh, uh, Does it say how long they've been together? No, it doesn't. Just his partner. So I'm going to assume a little while. Okay, so we'll assume, assume that you're de facto, so everything's kind of joint and muddied together anyway. If that's the case, then then look, um, banks will recognise an updated valuation normally after six months. So so if you go and get a new valuation and you've got an increase in equity, banks will generally recognise that. Um, so uh, sometimes a little bit sooner if you've um, if you've done something like renovations, you can often get a valuation a little bit sooner. So six months probably the thing. Um, if you're going, if you're not de facto and you're going to um, buy a house to Together, what you probably do want to do uh, over and above that is have a conversation with a lawyer together and then both go get your independent legal advice um, just around what happens in the event of separation. Not to make this as unromantic as possible, um, but yeah, that's just something to want to cover as well. And I think we've done some podcasts on that, 780 episodes. We've covered a lot of topics. So again, maybe jump onto the podcast and uh, um, uh, uh, database and um, type in <laughs> type in something like separation. As terrible as that no, sounds. Relationship you'll probably property. Read that one. Relationship 
relationship property. Right, that's it. That's it. Um, and again, not saying that you're ever going to break up because I'm sure that's not the case, but just something to think about over and above that. But six months is the, is the answer to your question. The other thing I'd do as well, anonymous attendee, is I'd also jump into the portfolio planner. Uh, so that's the spreadsheet we released at the last webinar. You can find that at opuspartners.co.nz slash portfolio because then you'll be able to put in your properties your mortgages whether you're paying them down whether you're doing whatever and you'll be able to put it in owner occupier with your desired lvr and you'll be able to figure that out pretty quickly so that'll be a really good place otherwise you can also talk to our uh, mortgage brokers at catalyst catalyst financial um i saw another great one as well which comes from anonymous attendee uh, gosh, you're asking a lot of questions. He's got lots days. of questions. <laughs> so, give it, so answer me this, riddle me this, Andrew. Given house price increases uh, or house prices have risen significantly, do you still have access to properties with a sustainable yield or sustainable cash flow? So defined as not have to contribute too much from your own pocket. Um, I, look, I guess it depends on what your too much is. I was working with some investors today. Uh, they may be on. The, they may be on this actually. And uh, uh, I looked at three properties in Auckland. Now, one of them, um, we factor in kind of all the all the kind of normal things like maintenance, vacancy, uh, uh, accounting fees, property management, everything you can possibly think of. And we also factor in the interest rates going up because they will, oh, they are. And and so we scale this over a 15 year period and we inflation adjust, we do all of those things. And one of the properties in Auckland was gonna cost them $90 a week if they're borrowing 100%. Um, another one was gonna cost $150 a week. Now, um, it could well be that they actually buy both of those because they've got enough income to easily cover that and the the properties per week were going up um, at the, the equivalent of about $1,000 a week. It would be the same as them saving $1,000 a week. So put in 100 get $1,000 out, you know, in theory, um, based on, based on uh, future growth. Well, that's worth it to them. But your situation might be different. You might be able to only afford $50 a week contribution, which is, again, quite achievable. Um, every property can be positively geared if you put in more cash, but we've got to recognise the fact that most people use equity rather than cash. And just remember, every investment requires some input at some stage. So don't be afraid to put in a little bit to get to get a lot out in the future. Now, Levelin, you've got a great question, which I quite like. She's asked, is it a good idea to sell my rental property and then pay off my mortgage and invest it in a new build. Now, of course, Levelin, apart from this question, I've got no idea about your financial situation, so not personalised financial advice. But what I can say is we are seeing some investors making that decision. So when they're now rerunning the numbers on their property and looking at what the cash flow is going to be in the future after the interest tax deductibility rules, they are making that decision. Now, if you want to run your numbers, you can find a spreadsheet to do that. It's arguably the most advanced spreadsheet uh, to run your numbers for an investment property. Uh, download that for free, opuspartners.co.nz slash ROI. Um, so that's a really good place to start. It may make sense for you, um, but you probably want to think about this quite, uh, quite uh, carefully because, of course, you can only sell a property once. Yeah, and I, actually, I just want to add to that as well. Um, so, so we do offer a portfolio uh, uh, analysis session as well. So that's that's that is something that you pay for. It's a thousand dollars, and that's with either myself or with Ian, and uh, who's remarkable, by the way. And um, in that, we'll actually map out the future of your portfolio, and then we can try different scenarios like that. And I would say that based on uh, the people that I've worked with uh, through that process, um, that is often a great option. And, uh, and 
fact, one of my one of my investors, one of my favourite investors. If you're there, Alexis and Alan, I'm talking about you. Um, they're just working through that kind of scenario at the moment, and it's 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 a great great scenario for people. Why don't we just take maybe two or three more questions and then we'll wrap it up for the night. Uh, I, I have to answer Stephen's question again. I'm quite liking your one, Stephen. He says, this is more an economics question, but is having higher inflation, <laughs> as was announced this week, so we had 4.9% in terms of headline inflation, is it good or bad for house prices? Well, I'm not going to answer your question, but I also am, Stephen. I think it is not as bad as what some people say. So I'm seeing an, a lot of investment, property investment forums, a lot of people really worried about inflation because obviously it pushes the interest rate up. But what you've got to remember is the other factor, which is that as prices increase, incomes tend to increase. And if money becomes less valuable, if money isn't worth as much, then as well as uh, your mortgage is not worth as much. So if prices go up by 10% and your mortgage is 500000 then your mortgage got relatively cheaper compared to other prices, especially if you're seeing the same increase in income. So if you're, uh, if you're seeing 10% inflation in broad prices, your income goes up, your mortgage is relatively cheaper. And so inflation is essentially a transfer from, from lenders over to borrowers. And so while it does mean higher interest rates, it also means relatively cheaper debt. So for anybody who's got debt, I often think inflation in some ways can be a good thing. It's a double-edged sword, of course, because of interest rates as well. But it is not necessarily always a bad thing. The other thing just to note is that when inflation was at its highest, when inflation was at its highest, which was back in the 1980s, we saw nominal house prices, nominal house prices increase, uh, they doubled in the space of four years between I think 1980 and 1984. So it certainly can stimulate the property market. But what I think is really important is to, to not be so worried about real house prices and focus on what the nominal amount is. Now, you might think that sounds quite strange, and this is getting a bit nerdy. But really, what we're trying to do in property investment is create a difference between what the, property, what the asset is worth and what the mortgage value currently is. And inflation helps us do that. So I'm not necessarily always opposed to inflation or worrying about it too much, but you've got to think about the interest rate as well. That was nerdy, sorry. I really rattled on. We probably lost half the audience, you did, Andrew. You did, you did, you did. Oh, yeah, we're down to three people in the room. Um, uh, just to answer a few people's together, um, Sue's asked about um, financing, so I, I, um, I'm going to just cover, kind of cover that. Um, this is for people that are maybe later on in life. Um, best advice I can give you is use a mortgage broker, and if you've got no mortgage, then that that's going to be a big help. Um, someone asked about dollar-for-dollar dollar refinancing. Um, dollar-for-dollar dollar refinancing is the ability to move Move your investment mortgage to another bank and not be subject to the LVR restrictions. So LVR restrictions limit to you know sixty percent when you're borrowing for a, an existing rental property, eighty percent if it's new. If you move your mortgage for an investment property, and you take the whole mortgage to somewhere else and place it there, um, secured by that property, then you can do. Technically, it's anything, but the bank will probably let you do 80%. Um, best, again, to talk to a mortgage broker. Catalyst Financial is our partner company uh, that helps people with that. And um, the, kind of the other one that I'm going to group into that, so I'm just taking the mic for a bit, um, paid for property valuation versus uh, versus using one-on-one -on -one, uh, one roof or, or homes. Um, how do you get a valuation and where do I pay for one? My advice is there, 
maybe use homes as a guide or do an evaluation through core logic or velocity um, and use that as a guide to see if, if getting a valuation is worth your while. If the bank needs a valuation, generally they will book it for you through core logical velocity through your broker or themselves. So it's a randomly allocated valuation. So you can't give your valuer a bottle of wine and say, would you mind just putting 750 on it? So um, don't waste your money getting it yourself necessarily because the bank might not necessarily accept that. So you just got to be a bit careful with that. Ed, do you want to do one more question? I saw one that I thought you might want to answer, which was, um, someone had read something. Oh, I've read. Gavin uh, said I've read that standalone houses, uh, uh, standalone houses, capital growth is going to be better than townhouses in the future. What's your view on this, Ed? Oh, I've, I've actually answered this on the um, on the website. Let me just pull it up. I always I, I always love this question actually. So that's why I gave it to you. <laughs> well, it's quite interesting because you can understand that a lot of people think that standalone houses, the value's in the land, and so a standalone house will increase at a faster rate than uh, another type of property. Now, let me just share my screen because we actually dug into the data on this, and we've got this article on the website, so you can go through and see, because it's a bit counterintuitive, actually, once you actually look at the data. So when you look at, what am I looking at? Two-bedroom houses versus townhouses versus apartments in Wellington, you can see, yep, two-bed apartments, way worse than townhouses or flats, and way worse than houses, but townhouses and flats relatively similar. Similarly, if I just f f flick down here, what I've done here is I've got the number of bedrooms and a whole heap of different cities. Now, red means townhouses did better, blue means houses did better, and the, the how dark the colour is means how much better they did over this timeline. I'd recommend you read this article, but this is probably a really good indicator. And what's interesting is there is more red here and more light blue than I was expecting. I think, like you, we probably thought there was going to be a whole heap of dark blue, which suggested that we that houses always beat townhouses. So if that was the case, this whole thing would be blue, dark blue. But that's not what we actually see in practice. Sometimes, you know, a two-bedroom townhouse in Hamilton in this period, which was uh, Jan 2000 through to June 2020, uh, townhouses did better. Same in Wellington. Three-bedroom townhouses did better in Christchurch. Now, I wouldn't suggest looking at this and say oh, well, two-bedroom uh, houses did better in Christchurch, so I'm going to buy a house here, but if it was a three-bed, I'd buy a townhouse. No, that's not what Jesse. It's just interesting to note that the trend isn't as clear-cut as you might think. And there was one final question. I know I'm going to shoot myself in the foot for answering this, but Anonymous Attendee said, where is the next Rolleston smiley face? Rangi order is, the, is my answer to that. <laughs> I'm just going to disclaim it. Ed doesn't have to find the properties. <laughs> um, fantastic. Shall we wrap it up there, Andrew? Oh, yeah. Well, there was a, one question that I was just trying to find the answer. Anonymous attendee also asked, which was what I was laughing about, hair product recommendations. Well, I mean, I'm sure no one's asking what Ed's using in his hair because Kelly's cutting it at the moment because he's, because he's locked in uh, lockdown. Uh, I can't actually remember the stuff I use. I was actually just trying to find it online to send you a link um, uh, because I hate to admit this, but my fiance now buys my hair gel for me. That's how, ter that's, that's how under the thumb I am. We're losing them, Andrew, with this talk of hair products. Yes. <laughs> right, thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks for coming along. Bye now.